Good evening to everybody and um, welcome to the LSE and especially a welcome to the four speakers who I will come to introduce in just a moment. Delighted to see so many of you on a cold evening and Christmas parties and all the other attractions at this time of year. Um, I should introduce myself. I'm Christine Chink, and I know many of you here, but not everybody. Um, I'm a professorial research fellow at the Centre for Women, Peace and Security here at the LSE, which is hosting tonight's event. So, first, a couple of formalities. Um, the event is being recorded, and the audio recording should be available online in a few days. And the second, if you want to tweet the hashtag, I'm probably blocking it, yes, um, should be somewhere. No, under the, the title. The yeah. hashtag for the event isn't um, actually up there. There is the. No, no, there uh, it is. Is it? Yeah. Where? Under the title. Under the title. Ah, oh, right. Okay, right. There it is. Um, so it is LSE at Philps. Now, why Philps? So this is um, where I'm just about to explain. That tonight's event is the first public event of a research project that's funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council and is located in the Centre of Women, Peace and Security. And it's on a feminist international law of peace and security. So affectionately called by all of us, Philps. Okay, so hence the hashtag Philps. Um, the project's a broad project. It's got multiple dimensions. But essentially what we're aiming to do in it is to examine the histories of women's civil society movements, engage with voices from, of women from different corners of the globe to develop an enriched and feminist understanding of what international law means or could mean or even should mean when it talks about peace and security. Words that figure in international law a great deal, but often don't have much content, remain ambiguous, remain uncertain. And the aim of challenging what peace and security mean under international law through a feminist lens is essentially to develop an international legal order that can more effectively deliver on gender equality and sustainable peace. So we're at the very outset of the project, as I said, this is the first public event. We're working on developing different themes to pursue under the project. Um, two that we are currently present, uh, addressing, and here's my prop for the evening. <laughs> the first one is, right, okay, do you all agree with that? We want a feminist foreign policy. And so what might constitute a feminist foreign policy? That's the first one. Um, we're also looking at gender, nature, and peace. And if you go into the website of Philps, uh, which is on the website for the Centre of Women, Peace and Security, um, you'll find there's a call for papers that have been put out by my colleague on the project, Dr. Kena Yoshida, who is just there. And we'll be delighted if people respond to this call of papers, which is essentially on gender, nature and peace. So it's sort of an eco-environmental um, approach to the issues of peace. And, of course, the third one we're developing at the moment is what our panellists are going to talk about tonight, which is women and weapons. And I'm sure most of you know here that there's been a very long history of women being involved at the forefront of campaigns for universal disarmament, for arms control, initiating humanitarian and peace projects. And um, we can go back to 1915 to the Women's Peace Congress that took place in the middle of World War I. 
We can look at the negotiations for the Arms Trade Treaty, for example, in 2013. More recently, the negotiations for the um, Nuclear Prohibition Treaty in 2017, all of which I think are going to get discussed later tonight. But despite these and many other efforts going on for well over a century, it is argued that rather than promoting peace, contemporary international law sustains militarism, legitimates the use of force, and in fact heightens insecurity rather than reducing insecurity. And of course today we're confronting the threats of growing militarization, military expenditure at a time of austerity, and as we all know, cuts in social spending. So in addition, we have new technologies that are constantly developing ever more highly sophisticated weapons and expanding the global weapons arsenal. But I think whatever weapons we are talking about, from small arms to today's high-tech weapons via, of course, conventional arms, nuclear arms, what is clear is that the issue of weapons in today's world is highly gendered. It's highly gendered in policymaking, in participation, in usage, in socioeconomic impact, in the very language that is used to talk about weapons. There are numerous examples of this, but this is my favorite one. It comes from an Indian nationalist leader talking about um, that country's nuclear testing. And he says, the nuclear testing proves that we are not eunuchs. Okay, gendered language for you. And I think this leads to the questions that we sort of set out in the um, publicity for tonight's event. But really, there's a central question. As feminists, what should be our preferred future strategy? Should we seek disarmament? Should we seek some sort of different notion of disarmament in some way? Should we seek further regulation under international law, knowing of the likely rejection before we start by the major powers? And acknowledging that regulation, of course, assumes the continued existence of arms. Or can we craft new strategies and adopt new agendas? So these are the easy questions that we set our panelists um, for tonight. Um, what I think we might say the big questions in many ways about all of this. They will address some of those questions and others from a different range of perspectives that they all bring to it. And, of course, this will be just the start of what I hope will be an ongoing conversation and discussion with tonight's panelists, with many other voices around the world and from other different perspectives as well. So what I will now do is introduce the speakers in the order in which they're going to speak. So first will be Dr. Renata Duan, who is on my immediate left. Uh, Renata is director of the United Nations Institute for Disarmament Research, or UNIDIR, is that how one says it, uh, based in Geneva. She initiated a dedicated program on gender and disarmament. She joined UNIDIR after 13, 13 years working on peace and security at the United Nations, including on peace operations, complex emergencies at UN headquarters, and in a range of countries, including Afghanistan, Democratic Republic of Congo, Malta, Mali, and Syria. Um, our second speaker is Ray Acheson. Oh, I should have asked Atchison. you. Atchison. I should have asked you that first. Acheson, who is the director of Reaching Critical Will, which is the name of a project of the Women's International League of Peace and Freedom, which, again, many of you will know has had a long history um, addressing issues of weapons. 
Um, so Ray leads Wilf's work on stigmatizing war and violence, including campaigning for a nuclear weapons ban treaty, challenging the arms trade, and the use of explosive weapons and armed drones. And then third, and on my far right, is Dr. Rebecca Johnson, who's an activist and founding director of the Acronym Institute and co-chair of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, ICANN, which you might remember was a Nobel laureate back in 2017, and are still a member of the ICANN steering group. Yeah, because yeah? I'm a former chair, co-chair. Former co-chair and current member of the steering group. As with Ray. <laughs> and is returning to the LSE. You have a PhD um, from the LSE. And publications including Banning the Bomb from 1950s Actism to the General Assembly via Greenham Common. <laughs> yeah. And then fourth is Dr. Ada Stavrinakis, who's Senior Lecturer of International Relations at the University of Sussex. I'm sure I pronounced your name wrong. Nope. <laughs> okay. Uh, researching and publishing in the arms trade, UK arms export policy, international arms transfer control, and militarism. So she's the author of Taking Aim at the Arms Trade, NGOs, Global Civil Society, and the World Military Order, and is co-editor of Militarism and International Relations, Political Economy, Security Theory. And you work with a number of different NGOs yes. as well. So a range of diverse views. Um, each speaker will speak for about 10, 12 minutes. Then there'll be a chance for you to answer questions and engage with them. We'll finish by 8 o'clock. But before I turn to Renata, um, this is an unusual public lecture. Um, it's unusual because normally the audience invites questions, asks questions of the speakers, and the speakers respond. Tonight we're asking you a question, and we are asking you a question that we want you to bear in mind, think about while the um, speakers are speaking, think about whether in fact you, know, you change your mind as they speak and so on. And so the question to you is, what does the term feminist peace mean to you? If somebody says feminist peace, what does that mean to you? So ponder it, and I will return to it at the end um, of the evening after the speakers have finished. So after that rather lengthy introduction, Renata, <laughs> turn to you. Thanks, Christine. And uh, hello, everyone. It's a pleasure to be with you here. Um, I am a recovering academic. And uh, when I come to uh, uh, events like this, it's usually with a mixture of trepidation and enthusiasm. Enthusiasm because it's so great to be in a forum where you're discussing ideas, which isn't as common as you might think in the world of uh, diplomacy uh, and multilateralism. Um, but a trepidation because you realize how loosey-goosey uh, the, the thinking of we in the policy world is. So I look forward to the exchange. So I'm going to just flag maybe three areas um, that I think I'd like to just um, start off to get the conversation going. I'm going to talk a little bit about um, the gender and in specifically women in the world of arms control and, and some of the challenges or the obstacles uh, to that. Then I'm going to ask a little bit about the why. Why do we want women in arms control negotiations anyway? And then I'm going to uh, put a few questions out as there as to what might be the agenda that you might be thinking on, on some of the questions that I think uh, uh, seem to me to be really important if we're going to look at a feminist uh, perspective on, on weapons uh, and war. 
So first is on, on women in, in arms control. And there's been there's quite a, a revival of interest in gender and diplomacy right now. You've got lots of emphasis on gender parity. There's lots of discussions around the Agenda 2030, around the Secretary General's agenda. Um, so that's not in itself a, a particularly new issue. But what's interesting in the arms control environment in the world of weapons and the world of the uh, debates about the regulation of weapons is how difficult it's been for women to, to uh, enter into that space. Um, and if you look at that uh, traditionally, world of diplomacy, women are fairly recent. First female ambassador was 1949. Um, the first Brazilian ambassador was 19, woman ambassador was 1956. And I re raise the issue about Brazilian ambassador because I think it's important that we don't see this as a global north, global south issue because often it's been global south countries that have been more to the forefront of, of uh, representation of women at senior levels. So, but it is still a phenomenon that is post-World War II. Uh, and if you look at the world of women and what women did in diplomacy, it was um, traditionally support tasks and then it became gradually onto what you might call the softer end of foreign policy. So uh, issues around protocol, cultural, economic issues, not even economic that much, uh, but rarely into the world of international security and even less into the world of arms control and disarmament. So if you think about international security as a very broad field, arms control is often seen as the holy grail and, and, and the uh, center of the most impenetrable uh, spaces, I think, on, on that question. Um, if you look at today, um, if you think about, we've done some statistics in Unidir for some work we did uh, on looking at gender parity. In areas, uh, comparable multilateral forms in the UN, women now are about 48% represented in, in many forms. In gender, it, in arms control forms, it's 25 to 30%. And of that, the area that is consistently the most uh, limited of women's participation is, perhaps no surprises to you, weapons of mass destruction. So that is perceived to be the area that has the least engagement of women. And I think there's some areas that I hope we'll talk about today as to why that's the case, but in particular the issue of sensitivity around issues of the gendered impact uh, of nuclear weapons on, on women has made that a taboo subject in the UK, for example. The United Kingdom has not for the first time, I think in many years, signed up to the General, uh, General Assembly resolution on women and disarmament machinery for precisely out of a concern. So it's actually breaking a consensus that had been established for many years on, on this question. So, so that's a little bit of, of, let's say, where we are in the world and how much that the weapons world is one that has, has been traditionally closed to women. If we look at um, the argument as to, well, so why should we have women in, in the world of, of disarmament and what do they bring and, and, and what's important to it? And I think there's three points that I think are worth really flagging. The first and the most obvious one is because it's a human right, and it's a, there's a rights question. And that has led many women, in, in particular in the United Nations, to argue, basta, that's the issue. We shouldn't get into a definition of what women bring. We shouldn't get into a question of that, because the simple issue is we represent over the 50% of the world, and we need to be in the, every forum that is discussing the future of the world. So that is a fair point, and that's a point that the, is, uh, the current primary approach of the UN Secretary General where the issue of parity is the issue of parity because it's a right-based uh, argument as opposed to 
uh, a, a merit-based argument. Uh, you'll see that in Agenda 2030, and you'll also see that in the Secretary General's Agenda for Disarmament that was launched this year. It's the first time a UN Secretary General has ever launched a comprehensive agenda on disarmament, and gender parity features as one of the goals in that. But I think it's gone a little bit more beyond that. That 1325, Security Council 1325 on Women, Peace, and Security has helped, I think, advance not just the rights-based argument, but also then bringing in the merit-based argument and the richness uh, of, of the role that women bring uh, to the space on, on uh, peace and security. And that's to maybe then the question of the effectiveness and what women bring to, to the issues. The most research that we have in this world, uh, in this area, is on 13. 25 and the role of women in peace processes. So if you look at the role of women in Northern Ireland, if you look at the role of women in Afghanistan, if you look at the role of women in the South Sudan peace processes, what you've seen is a broadening of the aperture of what security is. Uh, you've seen a discussion of inclusion of diversity. For example, in Afghanistan, you had minority rights championed by women in the 2003-2004 Bonn Conference, and you had disability rights put on the table as, as, as part of that discourse. So it's about broadening our concept of what security means, of broadening who should be involved in the discourse on security. And to that extent, I think um, the experiences uh, or that women bring inform the discussions of what future we want to have, and that, that's, I think, been a, a critical issue. I know my colleagues uh, will speak about some of the experiences of arms trade treaties and other spaces where you've seen a gender a dimension and being brought into more recent arms control. Um, but I think if we also look at, uh, I want to flag another issue, which is emerging work that has been done on risk and different perceptions about risk. There's a couple of studies that are being uh, done right now. Um, and I'm just going to get the reference, 2012 from, uh, from the University of South Carolina, or Southern California, excuse me, and then also the, by the neurobiologist uh, Van den Bos in the Netherlands, are both studies on how women approach risk differently. And that in both of these studies, found distinct studies, in times of stress, that men and women make different choices, and the outcomes are often better when, when women are involved. So women tend to quit when they're ahead, make safe bets. Now, I know this opens the whole can of worms as why should we look about women in a different way, but if you're in the business of arms control, you're in the business of thinking about risk. And I, and I think it's interesting to just look at some of the work that's emerging on that. There's similar work going on at the moment in Stockholm School of Economics uh, about women in, in, uh, in, in markets and, and perceptions of risk. So that's it. I just wanted to throw that out there. It does, it's not uncontroversial, but wanted to flag that. And then the uh, third argument is very basically coming from economics diversity theory that Women, diverse, more diverse groups produce better analysis and trigger more, less homogeneous solutions. And that, I think, is something you see time and time again in the arms control forum, which is that the arms control world has been a static world. It's a rarefied world. It's not like other parts of diplomacy where people come in and out. There's a highly noted, rarefied notion of specialization in it. So it's quite common for you, your UK civil servants, will it be in the same field 25, 30 years? I just came from a discussion on the future of the non-proliferation treaty. And when we started a discussion about the future of the Middle East, they first somebody said, can we please all add up how long we've been on this file? And they came around the table and talked about, I've been here 30 years, 35 years on this issue. I was involved in the discussions in the 1995. 
And that was being seen as this is bringing, therefore, real expertise and richness. And while that is also the case, my view of it was, and this is an example of why this discussion needs to stop right now and there needs to be a set of other actors because the success rate is not promising. So how to think about that and how to get into it is essentially a, a call for diversity and how might we think about that in new ways. I'm just going to stop by uh, then raising a third point. So it's basically, I think women need to be in the discussion on arms control, not just because of a rights base, but because I think there are things they bring, and it, you can frame it as what I would say, broadening the aperture of what security means and who's involved and how we think about it. The third thing, then, and what I think are some of the issues you might want to think about, mm -hmm. um, I feel first, and I'll just say it because I hope that others will take it up, but one of the values of women coming into the table is that they bring, they open the door for others to come. We talked about disability rights or inclusion of minorities or other perspectives of gender. Women are usually seen as the actors that bring the issue of youth up, if you want to think of. So do we want to stop at women at the table or do we really want to say where and how do we think about that diversity in a broader place? And should that burden of responsibility be on women or indeed should that be sort of some part of a, woman, a feminist agenda about opening it up to a much broader sphere? Um, the second uh, issue that I think is I really do feel arms control is stalemated. I say that not being very long in it, so perhaps when I get more jaundiced, I'll see progress. But, <laughs> but right now, I think we really need to look at new forms of engagement. Uh, you mentioned, Christine, the Treaty for the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. Also, if we think about the landmines and the ban on landmines, those are both the most significant progress we've seen together with the Arms Trade Treaty in the last two decades. And why were they in large? In large part because they had huge civil society campaigns around them. So in other words, it seems to me that arms control is too important to be left to formal diplomatic uh, frameworks and intergovernmental frameworks. And I say that as the UN. Um, and I think that we therefore really need to think about how do we conceptualize agendas and forums and negotiating spaces around arms control out of the formal multi-intergovernmental structures there are. Um, and that means public mobilization. And that is the biggest single failing, I think, for the arms control space right now as to how we bring in issues of weapons onto public agendas again. Um, the third issue then I would say that I think really needs thinking about is I'm not sure the future of arms control lies in legally binding instruments anymore. And, and when I think about issues such as um, autonomous weapons, when I think about issues such as cyber, I'm not sure we're going to regulate and tackle those problems by intergovernmentally negotiated treaties. They're dual-use technologies. They're being not developed or outside of government in many sectors. Uh, countries are loath to see them, to, to, to have regulation on them by virtue of their diversity. So are we going to have to think anew about arms control in new ways? And does that going to have to be involving things like standards, norms, mechanisms? What is that? So I hope a feminist agenda would look at that. And then finally, um, I think arms control is too rigid in its construction based around the state and, and seen as something that regulates relations between and among states. But when you see some of the women most actively campaigning right now around arms and violence and the impact it has on lives, it's within the state. So if you look at the women of Jamaica, or Trinidad and Tobago, if you look at Namibia, if you look at issues in South Africa, it's really grappling with the issue of violence in, within the state, 
women in, in West Africa, around the Sahel and Mali. So can we conceive of arms control at the level below the state? And what would that look like? And who would those actors be? And how would we think about that? So there are some of the things that right. I think would be yeah. interesting to Thank you. Thank you, Renata, for some really putting out some very provocative ideas as well and thinking. So, Ray. Yeah, absolutely. Um, thanks for having me here. And thank you, Renata, for that great presentation, which I think feeds perfectly into what I wanted to talk about, which is, um, I think, very similar to what you were saying about how uh, the, the state level is maybe not um, the only place, at least, that we should be thinking about disarmament and arms control issues. And I want to talk a little bit about uh, this concept of violence and how weapons and violence, the interrelation of these two things, are so highly gendered. And so I'm talking <clears throat> in my presentation a little bit beyond the participation of women in processes and getting to gender dynamics and gender norms and how that can affect how we operate in these spaces, what we're allowed to say, what's seen as credible, and what kind of policy decisions we can therefore take. Um, just a caveat before I start, I say this whenever I'm talking about gender, um, I'm not talking about all men this or all women that, I'm talking about gendered norms, about how we're expected to behave as men and women, and how any kind of other identity is usually left out of that discussion as well, any kind of queer, non-binary identity. So um, I don't mean this to say that all men are like like this or all women are like that. Just my caveat to begin. Um, I think that looking at gender in the context of disarmament and weapons is not just an academic exercise. Uh, I'm really glad that this conversation is happening in a lot of different spaces now because I think it's directly related to the policies that we set out on weapons. And we've seen throughout history how weapons and armament policies are interlinked so closely to notions of power and strength. And the quote, Christine, that you raised in the beginning about the Indian nationalist, um, that's a perfect example of it. Yeah. And there are many examples of that. Um, this idea whether it's small arms in communities or whether it's nuclear arms at the state level, this idea that weapons somehow afford us security as a state or as a community um, is really built into this conception as well of a very dominant violent masculinity, a sense that men need weapons to protect their women, to protect their communities or to protect their countries. And if we have, if we can think about this when we're talking about <laughs> disarmament on a community level with small arms, trying to reduce gun violence or uh, impose restrictions on the possession of, of firearms, or if we're talking about the international arms trade, or if we're talking about prohibiting nuclear weapons, it all comes down in my mind to the same thing. You see the same dynamics play out time and again, whether it's diplomats at the UN or folks working on community-based disarmament activism. Um, you see the, the inherent masculinities, this conception of power and dominance. Um, and you also see, I think, the ways in which those that do equate weapons with power and with security push back on alternative viewpoints. And there's a process of belittling, um, a sense that anyone calling for disarmament or calling out the dangers of, of weapons or the use of weapons or excessive accumulation, etc., these people are belittled 
um, told that we're naive. This is the way the world is. Um, we need these weapons because we have to protect, we have to deter, um, and there's really uh, a very highly gendered sense in how the pushback comes forward. I don't know if have many of you know the term gaslighting? Okay, so it's in politics right now a lot. Um, we're hearing it a lot, but it actually comes from a play from 1938, um, and it's a play about psychological abuse in a domestic situation. So this man uh, actually deliberately makes his wife go insane by denying her, her own lived reality. Um, and so the term is applied in politics to give a description to the situation that we largely find ourselves in now, where political leaders are just outright lying, denying our lived reality. And we see this a lot in the disarmament field, too. We see the nuclear armed states, for example, say that, you know, nuclear weapons aren't, aren't dangerous. They're not meant to be used. They keep us safe. They keep the world stable and secure. Meanwhile, these countries are you know, ripping each other's faces off. They are surrounding each other with more and more weapons. They are diplomatically uh, accusing each other of violating treaties. They are walking away from agreements that they've made. We're seeing this attack on the so-called international order by the states with the most weapons, and they're saying that they feel insecure, so they need to keep their weapons so that they can be secure. You see the catch-22 and the, the denial for the rest of us in our lived reality, living under the fear of nuclear weapons, living with uh, massive accumulation of conventional weapons. Um, this idea that we're told that, well, nuclear weapons have prevented an outbreak of war and conflict, so they obviously are, are keeping the world safe. Well, tell that to people around the world that are living in war and conflict right now. Ask them how safe they feel. Um, but their reality is not brought into the discussions on nuclear weapons. The reality of survivors of nuclear weapon testing and use is not brought into these conversations. And these people are largely people of color, indigenous populations. And they're not allowed to speak in the forums where these men with bombs are saying that they need their weapons to be secure. So this, to me, is what is a good indication of why a feminist discourse on weapons is so imperative. And um, by this, I, I mean something I think that Renata was getting to in the third point about a broader perspective. So for me, it's not just about adding women and stirring. You know, it's, it's, it's not about having more women at the table automatically translates into different actions because this situation that is so highly gendered and constructed for us means that once women get at that table, they often have to conform to the ideas that are already there. They have to play that game that's set up for them. And we need to bring in more diverse populations because we don't want to play on the stage that's been set for us. We want to rewrite a new script entirely. And to do that, it's not just about adding women, cisgendered white women, into the conversation. It's also about having queer perspectives, having people of color at the table, making sure that there is a class analysis engaged as well. So I'm talking about a very intersectional <laughs> feminist approach to these issues. We have to have disarmament, but the conversation about disarmament needs to be fundamentally different. And that's what I like so much about your remarks about it's not just at the state level. This isn't working for us. We've seen how it's, we've built up since 
since 1945, treaties and arrangements, and I think Rebecca is going to talk a little bit about that. Um, and that has worked to a certain point. We've seen successes around banning nuclear weapons, most recently banning landmines, banning cluster bombs. There's campaigns on now to ban the development of autonomous weapons, killer robots, um, and to try and prevent the weaponization of cybersecurity. And there's all these efforts that are being done at the state level, but they're still happening in these closed boxes. And breaking that open and thinking about how we change the entire perspective of what's credible, what we're allowed to say, what we're allowed to do, I, I, feminism is absolutely essential to this. Um, I think that you know we can we can sit here and chat about what that might look like, and everybody always wants the answer of, of, of what that looks like. And we can throw out the most radical ideas of this, you know, abolish the UN Security Council, stop using things like sanctions, um, build new security arrangements, eliminate arms industries. You know, we can talk about these ideas that right now to you sound completely insane because of what is what we're taught is possible and what we're taught is, is a credible approach to international security politics. Um, but we need to change that conversation fundamentally. And I'm very happy to be part of events like this and I hope that more people continue them because I think that at the bottom line in our work is rejecting an attitude that change isn't possible. That's the fundamental problem that I see in my work uh, as an activist who works at the international multilateral level, working with diplomats a lot, as well as uh, with students and, and grassroots organizations. On all sides of this equation, there is an attitude that we can't do things differently. This is how it is. This is what the international security environment is. This is, what, uh, this is how politics works. This is how things get done. If you want to be taken seriously, you have to behave like this. You have to dress like this. You have to look like this. Um, and I think the more that all of us can challenge that from an academic perspective, from an activist perspective, from a diplomatic perspective, that's where you see change. When we were working for the last several years on developing this treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons, it was where we had success was with countries that were fed up with the status quo and individual diplomats that were willing to take risks within their own systems. They put their careers on the line, but they cared a lot about it. And it was uh, led primarily from, by diplomats from the global south. Uh, it was led by many, many women. Um, we had a great queer representation with ICANN as well. So there was new perspectives, new voices, and a determination to do something that we were told could never be done, which was ban nuclear weapons. Um, and I think that having that attitude and that approach to uh, more and more initiatives is absolutely essential is how we break down the classic barriers that, uh, that still stand before us, of which there are many. I'm not saying any of this is easy, um, but it's just where I've seen the possibility for change lying. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. So the challenge to change attitudes, mm. it can be done. <laughs> Rebecca. <laughs> thank you. And uh, thank you very much for inviting me. I think it's only the second time, really, that I've come back to LSE since um, I was um, uh, a PhD student here. Um, and my remarks follow very directly from, and I just want to kind of, of um, agree with so much of the kind of framing and the, and the questions and the points being made by Renata uh, and Ray, because I think this is a developing conversation. What I want to do <clears throat> is to look at 
um, sort of three treaties that in my life I got very closely involved in and draw from them a number of kind of lessons and questions and thoughts about what it might look like if we were to be trying to develop a feminist foreign policy and a feminist international law on peace and security. Um, so um, my first kind of question really is what do we mean by a feminist international law or feminist foreign policy uh, or practice for that matter? And again, like uh, Ray, it's not about biological bodies as such, although it's connected between, into the lived experience of males and females as we grow up and the way that we encounter power and force and open doors and closed doors. And so how we come to see the world is, but, but, you know, is, is part of this discourse and it's, it's structural and it's cultural and it's political. But that's what makes it also very interesting. Um, and um, and you know, I want to start by paraphrasing, because I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but Audre Lorde, who reminded us that you can't bring down the master's house using the master's tools. And I'd slightly change that to, you can't bring down the master's house and rebuild a collective home using the master's tools, because I think that that's actually um, what we need to be looking at. Um, so, well, I'm not a lawyer. Um, I was trained originally as a scientist, and you know, my PhD was actually in multilateral diplomacy, international relations. Uh, particularly with regard to the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty. That was the one I analyzed very closely. But I'm going to start with the INF Treaty, which is actually in the news, the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, because that was my first treaty that I got involved in, but not as a scientist, although I was one then, not as, as an IR person, although I was beginning to move into that direction, but as an activist on the ground at Greenham Common. And one of the first things I encountered you know, and we all encountered going down there, was people who said, but why have a women's peace camp? Because nuclear bombs kill everybody, just the same. And do you know, in September of this year, I was giving a lecture at the Defence Academy in Shrivenham about the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons that you've heard referred to already. And the, I, taught, I, I mentioned that the preamble of that is a feminist humanitarian security preamble that frames the prohibitions and obligations of the treaty. And of course the question came, what do you mean a feminist? What's, what's you know, feminism got to do with a nuclear treaty? Well, I think it relates to why the, the idea of a feminist international law is also so interesting. So one of the first things that, that we, we did down at Greenham was we realized that all those theories of nonviolent action that went back to Gandhi or maybe Martin Luther King, honorable though they, they may have been in developing those practices for their struggle, it wasn't going to work for us at Greenham. We didn't want to be violent, no. But we had to recognize that lying down in front of a bunch of police and a bunch of, of bulldozers and uh, you, you know, violent tools and, and, and machines actually disempowered us. And you can't be an effective nonviolent practitioner 
if you're having your power taken away from you, if you're disempowered. So we had to develop other kind of techniques, and through that we developed a feminist philosophy of nonviolence that was very much about responsibility, about looking after each other. It was putting human security uh, first, and that meant um, bringing in the, the, the learning from people from the Pacific um, and around the world who's, who'd, who'd suffered from the use of nuclear weapons in Japan and the use of nuclear weapons for testing in quite a lot of places, mostly indigenous lands uh, all around in a number of places in the world. So learning from that and then incorporating that in our, our practice that um, you know, we, we played with very creative ways to confront the violence. We didn't do that thing of suppressing fear and anger. We actually acknowledge fear and anger are, are, are powerful emotions. And what we wanted to do was channel them into changing the situation that made us all so powerless, that brought in the nuclear weapons and so on and so forth. So, you know, we distinguished between conflict, which frankly is a very important part of change. The suffragettes would not have won the vote, we're just having anniversaries at the moment, had they not been prepared to make it a conflict against those that denied women the vote. What we wanted to look at was violent and especially armed conflict and oppose that, and that goes back to the questions of risk and the weapons. So, <clears throat> Um, so, the second, uh, so, so the second area that I wanted to look at was how might we move beyond feminist perspectives, uh, sorry, uh, beyond, yeah, beyond feminist perspectives, looking at the framing, the praxis, and looking at um, uh, framing uh, new kinds of, of treaties. And here again, so, you know, at Greenham, as activists, we mobilized tens of thousands of women in this country. And that became hundreds of thousands. Actually, we, we calculated that in a couple of, of the actions that we did, over a million around the world of women, specifically women, although many of them did bring men in in different roles. But it was women-led and women challenging the, the, the armed powers, calling not only to get rid of the specific women, the, the specific weapon systems, crews, Pershing, SS-20s, but changing the blocks, getting rid of the Warsaw and NATO blocks, well, we got half half of it done, you know, and um, and you know, relating back and forth across those borders that divided Europe, doing the very things that we were told we couldn't do. But then, when there was the treaty, it was between Reagan and Gorbachev. It was the men sitting down at a table. Gorbachev has acknowledged the role the Green and Women played and the peace movement to Europe. The, the, most of history doesn't acknowledge that. So moving swiftly on, the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty is another treaty that most people do not associate with a feminist perspective. But that's actually one of the things that I brought into my, my, my thesis here at LSE, and it became a book published by Unidia, in fact, and, and given out in Vienna uh, by the, the um, CTBT organization to new ambassadors, because it talked about how the treaty was achieved, the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, both the positives and the main thing that went wrong, which has meant that the treaty has never entered into force. It's the entry into force provision. And again, I deliberately brought in the role of civil society in bringing this issue to attention through, hum through framing it 
once again as a humanitarian issue. I say once again because it started in the 50s as humanitarian and then it became technical technicalized, technicalized, you know, however, it became very, very specifically associated with, with the technical issues, the verification issues, and lost, it, it, you know, the driving force, which was to stop these mushroom clouds and then stop the underground nuclear testing that was bringing new kinds of weapons in. Um, and through analyzing that treaty that you know I worked on as an activist for Greenpeace and an organizer for Greenpeace and then in Geneva for the three years of the negotiations I was virtually the only civil society I had to stay outside the door I wasn't allowed in um, and there were hardly any women as ambassadors uh, in that situation and I analyzed that whole thing and out of it came because I had a science background I did an equation and it actually looked at what were the conditions under which a multilateral nuclear treaty would work or not work? And then I started looking around at the kind of treaties that we were being told about, about fissile materials and space, and I started applying this equation and realized that to get the, uh, uh, to get the next major treaty we needed to have to change the way that nuclear disarmament was done, we actually had to go back to those first humanitarian feminist principles and ban nuclear weapons and ban them in a process that gives power to the powerless within the, the, the nuclear order, and that was, as we've heard, non-nuclear countries that had signed up to a treaty, um, the Non-Proliferation Treaty, uh, were, were the good guys, and then were just simply seeing their power constantly taken away from them, and being told that precisely because they didn't have these weapons of mass destruction, they didn't really have a right to say very much on how they were dealt with. And that's what ICANN changed through reframing the issue of nuclear weapons as not just being the business of the nuclear armed states uh, with all their power, the P5 power inside the um, Security Council, we deliberately talked about nuclear armed states. We put the four outside the NPT, India, Pakistan, Israel and North Korea into the same um, problematic basket, if you like, as, as, as problem actors in security with the five who considered that they had a legitimacy under the NPT and their role on the Security Council to have nuclear weapons really in per perpetuity. You know, every five years they just kind of, you know, give a little tap and say, oh, well, we're going to do something. But really they had an, a nuclear order that gave them the power, gave them the control and took it away from everybody else around actually broader issues of security than just nuclear. So it's, you know, recognizing that a feminist um, foreign policy and indeed feminist law will have to address power. So I could say a lot more about that, but yes, it has a preamble. I urge you to read this. It not only has a feminist preamble in, if you like, theoretical terms, in terms of the fact that it's non-discriminatory, that the obligations and the prohibitions both uh, do not give special privilege to any state, whether they have nuclear weapons, whether they want them, whether they don't have them, but actually recognizes in the Articles 2 to 5 um, that the nine nuclear armed states, problems though they are, have, um, th th it's one size doesn't fit all. 
and, 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 you know, to avoid some of the mistakes of trying to treat these things as technical problems that have kind of doomed the CTBT and in some... So, <clears throat> so it has that, and it actually directly re references indigenous people's rights, the rights of the Hibaksha, the sufferers from uh, nuclear weapons and testing, and um, uh, the specific impact on women and girls... This was questioned down at, at, at Shrivenham. And also the importance of women's agency of including women with men in uh, all aspects of disarmament. So this is actually written into this, this treaty. So the final thing I come to really is questions. Is it necessary? Oh, uh, yeah. And, and it's, of course, the putting, the putting people and nature's ecosystems, um, future generations, uh, first, when determining acceptable and unacceptable, legal and in illegal means, uh, practices, means, security, approaches and tools, and means of defense. So the question is, is it necessary for a feminist international law on peace and security to be predicated on reducing and eliminating all uses of force? Um, and therefore weapons in international relations? If so, what would that look like? If not, what would that look like? Where would the legal limits and boundaries be drawn? Under which principles would you have in, in, in the law? How would they be promulgated and adopted in national legislation and also enforced? If you, this is pre presumed to come under international humanitarian law, and that's important because that applies in times of war as well as in peace, which a lot of arms control treaties do not, according certainly to, to uh, lawyers. And um, uh, finally, actually, I think, yeah, the, I th I, I'm intrigued by Renata's question about has, you know, multilateral treaties, have they kind of run their course? But I think that a treaty such as we're, you know, the, some of the treaties such as we're developing on landmines, cluster munitions, and the, 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 the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons, it kind of frames the norms and the laws, but it recognizes that some of the nitty gritty of how the law is applied needs to be adapted for different communities, different countries, for non-state as well as state actors, and so on. And that's what I think could be very interesting to look at when we think about feminist international law. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Rebecca, uh, for another different perspective. And so, Anna, <laughs> where do you go on this? Thanks. Thank you very much for the invitation, Christine. It's a real pleasure to be uh, following on from such wonderful speakers. In October this year, Saudi Arabian journalist Jamal Khashoggi was murdered in the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. One of the consequences of his death has been increased opposition to the Saudi-led coalition's involvement in the war in Yemen, which is reliant on US and UK-supplied weapons, as well as wider military and diplomatic support. This is welcome news, but I find something unnerving about the ability of the murder of a single male journalist to trigger a crisis in Western arms export and foreign policy in ways that nearly four years of war in Yemen have not. The war in Yemen has killed upwards of 60,000 people, generated a cholera epidemic, and a politically induced, entirely preventable famine. So why does the death of one man have consequences that the deaths of tens of thousands of people 
potentially millions if famine worsens, don't. Many have been horrified by the gruesome manner of Khashoggi's death, the targeting of a journalist, his calculated execution by the cronies of a leader out of control. Is the same not true for Yemenis? We've heard the accounts of the manner of their deaths at the hands of Saudi and UAE militaries and their proxies, either directly from US and UK supplied bombs or from malnutrition, and at the hands of the Houthis, except they don't have the connections to keep their deaths in the headlines. The intimacy of the manner of Khashoggi's death shocked people. But how many women, queer and trans people are viciously murdered around the world every day, with weapons or without? I raise these questions to indicate the parameters and limits of international public concern, which are bound up with horror and intimacy in highly gendered ways. There are already national and international rules and laws around arms sales that should have kicked in to prevent the aiding and abetting of serious violations of international humanitarian law in Yemen by the US and UK. What does it tell us about the state of arms transfer control that a murder committed with a bone saw generates more crisis than nearly four years of likely war crimes committed with high-tech weapons? You've probably heard of Jamal Khashoggi. I suspect that fewer have heard of Marissa Alexander. In 2012, Marissa Alexander was sentenced to 20 years in a Florida prison for aggravated assault with a lethal weapon, having fired a warning shot after her abusive estranged husband attacked her and threatened to kill her nine days after she gave birth to a premature child. She caused no physical injury to him. She had no previous criminal record. And Florida's self-defense law includes the right to stand your ground, which allows the use of lethal force in the face of threats. Marissa Alexander is an African-American woman. As Kimberly Crenshaw describes it, Marissa Alexander's case illustrates the ways in which black women are under siege, not just as black people, but as black women. We've probably all heard of Trayvon Martin, whose death was one in which the state and private violence converged to endanger and take the lives of black people, says Crenshaw. But fewer of us may have heard of Marissa Alexander, whose case is also a state-private convergence, but the private dimension of the violence is interpersonal violence. Crenshaw again. Black women in the US are turning to gun ownership in increasing numbers. What does that mean for the gun control movement in the US and internationally in the context of a country that has the highest levels of gun ownership and gun violence in the industrialized world? If we center the racialized but also gendered dynamics of gun ownership, gun violence and gun control, our analyses and prescriptions might need to be more careful. Feminist histories of gun circulation and gun control must not ignore those who turn to weapons for self-defense and to exercise agency in massively asymmetrical, masculinized and racialized contexts. So these two lives of Jamal Khashoggi and Marissa Alexander 
raised some uncomfortable questions about women and weapons, gender and disarmament that a feminist reading of international law must deal with to promote sustainable peace. They illustrate the spectrum of what are called conventional weapons, from fighter jets, bombs and missiles being used in Yemen, traded in their billions by states acting in concert with arms capital, to handguns, themselves a lucrative trade, but also bought and sold by individuals, poorly regulated in many domestic contexts, but also the subject of several international regulatory agreements. Answering these questions requires us to get into deeply political debates about violence and its regulation. Some of the answers seem to appear in the UN Arms Trade Treaty, which came into force in 2014. Buried in the Armed Trade Treaty's 13 pages of formal diplomatic language is a transnational feminist success, as Cynthia Enlow has put it. Article 7.4 obliges exporting states' parties to take into account the risk of weapons being used to commit or facilitate serious acts of gender-based violence or serious acts of violence against women and children. And states must refuse exports where there is an overriding risk of serious violations of international humanitarian law or international human rights law. Given that many acts of gender-based violence are indeed violations of international humanitarian law and human rights law, most commentators see Article 7.4 as a win. It makes it harder for perpetrators to access weapons. Nonetheless, I want to raise three challenges for a feminist reading of international law in relation to women and weapons, gender and disarmament. First, when we talk about disarmament, where and how do marginalised groups figure when they turn to weapons for self-defence and for power? These might be ethno-national groups. Debates about arming the Kurds in Syria echo those around arming the Bosnians in the Yugoslav wars. There are many other examples, and each of these movements will have their own gender dynamics. But marginalised groups might also include, for example, black women in the US. What does disarmament mean and look like in their context? Rather than peace, or in addition to peace, we might want also to talk about justice or equality. And that's a difficult conversation, in part because of the strength of pro-gun groups in the US and their argument that guns don't kill people, people kill people, but also because of the whitewashing of armed resistance in many accounts of history. Nonetheless, it's an important conversation to have. Second, the US experience is both specific and central to international weapons control or lack thereof. US gun laws and levels of gun violence are generally seen as an anomaly in the industrialised world, an exception in the growing worldwide movement for tighter restrictions on the circulation and use of guns. But rather than an omission, the absence of the US in international gun control is a constitutive exclusion. That is, international action to combat gun, prolifer gun proliferation is structured and shaped by US red lines on civilian possession even as it refuses to be bound by those very rules. The racialized and gendered dynamics of gun control reverberate in the US as well as in other extremely violent societies that became that way through their relationship with the USA, 
either through slavery, incorporation into a US-led global capitalist economy, or through military alliance. Third, feminism must navigate north-south asymmetries in the formal UN system. One of the main lines of contestation in the Arms Trade Treaty was between states that adopt a narrow, sovereignty-based and legalistic interpretation of what constitutes an illegal arms transfer. They say, was it authorised by the state? If so, it's both legal and legitimate. Major non-Western importers and exporters such as Russia, China and India articulated that sort of position. On the other hand, European states, and to an extent the USA and many uh, uh, states in the Global South, uh, CARICOM states and Sub-Saharan African states, articulated a much broader interpretation that transfers must be both authorised by the state and also in line with international human rights and international humanitarian law standards if they are to be legitimate. There is much that is potentially more progressive about that latter position, and it's one that's in line with much feminist thought and praxis around armed violence. However, European states and the US, who claim to have that more progressive position, themselves routinely transfer weapons that contribute to human rights and international humanitarian law violations, and non-Western states accuse them of hypocrisy, with some justification. So feminists must navigate the politics of a UN system based on formal equality, but marked by ongoing asymmetry. The shared masculinist politics of wanting to transfer weapons as a marker of statehood is shaped by an imperial politics of north-south asymmetry that complicates any simple understanding of what constitutes a progressive position. To conclude, too often in weapons control, the G for gender in GBV is used as a synonym for women. And there are specific harms that women face as women. Most people killed or injured with weapons are men, but women face disproportionate harms from the fact of being women, as do queer and trans people. But if feminism has taught us anything, it's that the harms of weapons are always gendered. They are both masculinized and feminized. So how can a feminist, anti-militarist, post-colonial and anti-racist critique be operationalized in relation to the gendered harms of war and the gendered politics of who uses weapons and how? A feminist critique that all violence facilitated by the circulation of weapons is gendered and that all weapons transfers have the potential for gender-based violence combined with a post-colonial and anti-racist critique of power is indicative of the scale of the challenge, one that I'm sure Christine's project is very well placed to address. Thank you. Well. Thank you for four incredible speeches, which, to answer your last point, tells us just how hard the project actually is and whether any chances at all of coming up with any answers. Um, numerous challenges have been addressed, numerous questions have been asked, um, many ideas posed. So, over to you to ask questions. Um, there are roving mics, the usual sort of process. Um, could you please give us your name and affiliation? And um, I'll take questions in sort of clusters of three or four. And... Um, well, yeah, keep them reasonably brief so more people can ask questions. 
So who would like to start here? Um, hello, my name is Tony Robinson. I'm from the uh, international news agency Presenza. Uh, we've been covering um, disarmament, especially for the last uh, 10 years, so uh, I'm happy to be here to see Ray and, and Rebecca, I know many times from different forums. Um, my, my question or my observation is to do with um, uh, one thing which was none of the panelists mentioned was the subject of youth, and I think that it's a very important factor. It would be interesting to see similar statistics that Unidir have produced on women's participation, also on people under 30, for instance, because what there is increasingly obvious in the world is a, is a new sensibility which is appearing amongst uh, young people, which is rejecting violence in all its forms, which is um, much more uh, tolerant. And, and I think if... Uh, if we heard more of those voices in all of the disarmament forums, we'd also see it a lot, a, a lot easier to generate uh, consensus and, uh, and opinions because young people are clearly much more horrified about, uh, about well, I have this impression that they are. I mean, I'm 50 now, so what do I know? But um, I expect they're a, a lot more horrified about the violence they see than... Um, uh, than, than we do as, as an older generation. So um, I, I just wanted to put that as a, as a point of consideration. So the question essentially of youth participation yes. yeah, um, in disarmament and presumably other discussions around weapons. Great. Somebody here. No? <laughs> yeah. Can you, sorry, say who you are? And I am alumnus of this institution, the International Aid Department. Um, when it comes to women and violence and women and peace, is it uh, useful to inform women, well, and the whole world, actually, about famous women of the past who've contributed towards international peace and security? One woman that you may know of is Baroness Berta von Sottner, Countess Kinsky, who was actually a friend of the founder of the Nobel Peace Prize, Alfred Nobel, and was the first lady to win the Nobel Prize for Peace. So I think that, um, it, it, do you think it would be useful to publicize that her life and career and other famous women of the past who've contributed to these issues? So essentially, women's um, history in peace movements, peace campaigns, and that the voices we're hearing now are a continuation, essentially, of um, a long story. What about some of the women? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, no, wait for a mic, because we need it for the recording as well. <laughs> um, hello? Can you hear? Is that good? Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm Keje. I'm at school. Um, I was just wanted to ask... Um, if you thought that it's necessary for women to be equally involved in like initial military um, action or arms deals before the actual peace talks, right. or whether you think that women can automatically go into peace talks and integrate into that without having that gender equality in military action. Okay, so gender equality across the board, essentially, in the military action as well as um, subsequently. Hello, <laughs> I'm a student uh, for Women, Peace and Security here at LSE. 
Um, so I was interested in how do you see um, disarmament in relation to the women, peace, and security agenda, um, and how can we work through um, women, peace, and security to address the issues that you just raised? Thank you. So the relationship between the women, peace, and security agenda, disarmament, and is that a tool? Is that a tool yes, that we can exactly. use? exactly. Yeah, in various ways. Um, right, people are really now. Um, I'll take one more in this round, then I'll come back to the speakers, then we'll have a, um, another round. So, yeah, at the, at, at the back. Thank you. Hi, my name is Katie, and I'm a student in violence, conflict, and development at SOAS. I um, can't hear Sorry, you. can you, yeah. Can you hear me now? Yeah, okay. Hi, my name's Katie. Um, my question is around what Renata was saying around about legal treaties perhaps not being the, the right mechanism. And I want to connect that also to how we bring in the circulation of arms into this conversation and the, the selling of arms, um, particularly thinking about, you know, at the same time as, you know, autonomous weapons and cybersecurity is rising in the agenda, we have negotiations at the WTO on e-commerce, which brings into consideration all things around data, circulation and, and sovereignty. And how can we begin to sort of bring more, um, bring the question of the global trade of arms into this and from a feminist perspective so that we can bridge these agendas? Thank you. So the global trade of arms, which we touched on through the Arms Trade Treaty, but to expand that, and how perhaps to bring the whole trade, weapons, feminism debates together. Is that um, really? Okay, some challenging questions. Um, who would like to start? Uh, volunteers among you? <laughs> okay, I'll kick, yep. kick off. So I'll, I'll start with the last one and sort of work uh, backwards. But... <clears throat> On this question of the, the treaties, uh, I think it's actually, actually really interesting because I think we, we need to have some kind of a shared legal basis through, uh, you know, treaties, <laughs> norms, uh, and or structures and institutions uh, because I think we need to have uh, those things to be able to hold states and other potential uh, non-state actors accountable and to be able to use uh, the norms in, in ways that are recognized internationally. But do I think that we need to do treaties in the same way as we've been doing arms control? And I, and I noticed you were specifically talking about arms control and I think Ray and I very much were talking about disarmament and I think that that itself is a, is a different kind of framing. Although we recognize that arms control may be, but is not always, may be a step towards disarmament but it may actually be an embedding of the status quo power of certain states with certain kinds of weapons. Um, and that's why I think we do need um, to have the, um, you know, some kinds of treaty regimes, but I'm really open to thinking about what they might look like for the future and how they might be negotiated and by whom. Because I personally think that the, the you know, the, the uh, nuclear ban treaty, nuclear prohibition treaty, you know, it, it was negotiated in the UN, it was open to all member states of the UN, but it was not allowed to, you know, it was structurally not allowed to be blocked as it might have been if it had been negotiated at the Conference on Disarmament in Geneva or, you know, bringing in the Security Council or so on. 
Uh, I think it's a completely valid approach to do it that way because the choice is left up to the states. If they boycott it, and the nuclear armed states and most of NATO basically did, well, tough, you know. The fact is that then they were not at the table when this was negotiated. It's up to us to make it apply. And then, but, but, and it's not mutually um, uh, exclusive to working on other forms. They can do their bilateral or their plurilateral, but the point is that anything that they do from now on will be framed within the context of the UN Treaty. So that's that. The, on the history thing, Berta von Suttner and the suffragettes and Green and Common Women and, you know, all these other, you know, Pentagon actions, yes, I would love it if there was just a little bit more awareness of, of, of those histories. But let's understand one reason why there isn't. Because a lot of the time, f feminist action for peace and justice has been collective. So we don't elevate a single person to be our great leader. Uh, that's why ICANN's Nobel Peace Prize is a collective one. Ray and I are both Nobel Peace Prize laureates, together with you know, the rest, not only of the core group, you know, that, 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 that founded and, uh, you know, and, and really drove this forward, but an awful lot of other people that participated as partners with ICANN, which is why we kind of take our medals around and, and, and use them to inspire people to do more. But that's one reason why women are more, are more easily written out because so much of, of uh, you know, and, and that's why we need academics who don't do that. Um, and then, leave the rest to somebody else. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. You all choose different ones to yeah, good idea. respond to. Um, yeah, Anna? Yeah, sure, yeah. I'll pick up on um, two of them, the question about participation and the question about the WPS agenda. I mean, the question of, you know, should women be equally involved in arms deals is, is an interesting thought experiment. On the one hand, my initial response is, arms sales are such a masculinized activity that in order to succeed in that as a woman, you have to conform to the masculinized norms and rituals of, of that behavior. And it's not obvious to me that increasing the number of women would change the character of the arms trade. Um, on the other hand, picking up on the example of Marissa Alexander, um, you know, some of the stuff that Kimberly Crenshaw has said about arms, about the, the, the turn by black women to, to handguns, she says that actually the advertising around handguns in the US absolutely is not aimed at black women, right? But there is an opening there for them to subvert the use, um, to subvert the kind of dominant messages around, um, around weapons and violence um, in, in being able to get access to them. So it's never a one-way um, it's never a one direction of travel. On the WPS um, agenda, I, my, way, my way into these questions has not been through um, kind of the, the growing literature on the w, WPS agenda. I'm just coming to it now um, from a background that's much more steeped in my, much more of the kind of masculinist traditional arms control um, literature. Um, but what's quite striking, it seems to me, is the way that actually disarm calls for disarmament and demilitarization um, kind of seem to have 
fallen, almost mm. fallen away mm. from the original yeah. demands being yeah. made 100 years ago. Yeah. Right, so there's a really good article by Anne Tickner and Jackie True that's just come out um, that talks a little bit about this um, and, and work by people like Laura Shepard, Samita Basu, who talk about the way in which the WPS agenda is actually itself at risk of being militarised, of being mm. co-opted and brought into um, kind yeah. of uh, militarised and mass, uh, militarised uh, modes of engaging on questions of peace and security. So that's where I turn to. Thank you. Yeah, and I would echo that a little bit because one of the big drivers of the WPS uh, agenda in, in practical terms in, in conflict zones has been to be a big focus on gender-based violence and that in turn has led to more offensive uh, mandates, mandates under Chapter 7 of the Security Council where protection of civilians is understood in, in a... In a, in a in a militarily aggressive way. And then you have the creation in, for example, the Congo of the Force Intervention Brigade, a separate entity quite apart from the rest of the UN peacekeeping operation for the purpose of offensive military operations um, in partnership with the Congolese Armed Forces, which are, at a conservative estimate, uh, seen to be responsible for over 70% of human rights abuses in Congo. Um, I'm not taking a position on whether that's, I think that's a complex set of, of narratives that we need to think about, about myself, and I'll be frank, I do fall on the side of protection of civilians, that that may at certain times require uh, the use of force. Uh, however, I do, it's ju I'm just using that as an example that the WPS agenda in the context of women's protection hasn't really looked at anything on changing social economic aspects, empowerment of these women, uh, support and protection of those agendas. Uh, if you look at who just won the Nobel Peace Prize, Dennis McGuenge, uh, for his work on on um, supporting victims of sexual violence uh, in, with his hospital in the Congo. He does run a whole set of, of activities around enabling empowerment and engagement for these women back to them. And they're re usually the most underfunded and, and, and continues to be the area that he navigates the most difficulty in. For those of, of you who, who've been following that story, you'll be familiar. So I do just flag that. I will just say two things about the WPS agenda. I, I think um, it hasn't in my view, from the, the experience I've had in the UN, tended not to focus on arms control and disarmament, but I think they're very keen to enlarge that scope to it. Uh, UN Women has um, put a person in Geneva, has opened an office to have much more engagement with the disarmament agenda and world there, so I think you will see more of that engagement. I think they're trying to find exactly where and how they can be useful in that policy space beyond a broader general commitment. The other thing I think you need to remember is that the WPS agenda is felt to be, has strong ownership amongst the African uh, uh, states. It's seen to be uh, championed by Namibia, championed by South Africa, championed by the African Union, and there is a strong sense of ownership there. And in much of the disarmament debate, the Global South feels that it's a debate that's hijacked by Global North. Uh, debates around arms trade treaty, debates around disarmament that they don't feel addresses the issues that they pertain to their world today. So, for example, the African Union initiative silencing the guns, uh, as which they call it on a conventional arms, they don't feel has received funding and attention as part of broader agenda uh, on, on arms control. Uh, and second, if you look at the current campaign around issues of ammunition and ammunition being put on the agenda as an issue of conventional arms control, that's something that women from CARICOM and Central America and Latin America are very much feel is, is something they want to put on the agenda and, and, and feel that that's been very slow in coming. I'll just say something about youth. 
Um, Absolutely. I think I did mention in terms of that women bring that perspective in often because of roles as heads of households in conflict scenarios um, as, as mothers and or household managers of, in particular, the issue of youth, um, youth and fatalities for conventional arms control, small arms like weapons. You'll know the statistics about just how many uh, are between the ages of 18 and 24 in terms of death, uh, male. male. Um, but the the initiative that's been the most successful in institutionalizing a kind of youth forum group is really the CTBT, the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty Organization. And the head of that, the current head of that, Lacina Zerba uh, from Burkina Faso, has, has been really active in setting up a youth group and a movement and engagement and speaks about it all the time and brings those youth members with him all the time, has different chapters engaging. So that's probably been the most um, example that I've seen. I'll just flag two things. One is it's still in multilateral forums that I've seen, the youth are still spoken in the most patronizing way. It really is a sort of nod on the head. Oh, how nice of you to come sit quiet in the corner. Even worse than, than women. And, and, uh, and I think that raises some real issues of how, when we say youth participation, what do we really mean by youth participation? Um, and the second thing I would say is that uh, the whole procedure for the registration of getting yourself access, and those of you who are parts of NGOs and trying to get yourself registered as a significant barrier for youth to come in in a more dynamic engagement. Um, and so I would look at using social media. And I feel that the youth, um, the what I would say the vast majority of formal government processes are terrified about social media because they don't know they don't know how to use it very well apart from the odd sort of tweet and Twitter. So what I've been saying to youth activists is go out on social media and be really active in that space because they, they're terrified about that from a strategic <laughs> comms perspective. <laughs> you right. All right. Um, yeah, I can pick up there, I think, on, on the youth. I was also going to raise that at the UN, uh, you're not allowed in if you're under 18. So you have to get special permission. You have to have, yeah, exactly. You have to have um, uh, like a guardian sign up to escort you around the premises and all of this. So youth engagement at the UN, um, beyond the initiatives, I mean, it, there are some efforts, like you were saying, being made. But, but beyond that, it's usually uh, a youth representative being brought in to showcase and to give a speech. And these are often quite powerful. We've had, you know, um, survivors from the Parkland shooting, for example, in the United States, or uh, child soldiers, survivors, uh, come in and give presentations. And these are always very powerful and emotional. But then they go out of the room and all the diplomats continue the conversation without Absolutely. them. And we see the same thing, too, around women, peace, and security debates. Every October, there's a high-level event, and uh, civil society gets to have a speaker. And so we spend a lot of resources and time um, bringing someone, but they come in, they deliver the speech, they go out, the Security Council continues on as if they were never there. Um, so it's not, it's, all of this kind of gets to the questions about 1325 and women in the military as well, because it is, it's, it's the token element of it, but then it's also just, again, entering these structures that exist and not challenging these structures and the modes of operation within them. Uh, and that's why to from Wilp's perspective, we don't advocate for more women in the military as an answer or a solution. Um, we are concerned the same way that Anna was talking about with the militarization of 1325 and this idea that just incorporating more women into these structures that exist is the solution. When really what 
we need to be figuring out how to do is to bring in feminist perspectives, queer perspectives, um, you know, across the board, we need to, to figure out how to have these voices that are actually part of the conversation in changing these. We don't need to be buying into the arms trade industry or the military industry, but instead thinking about alternatives to these um, and not being bound up uh, within those systems. Uh, I think we've got time perhaps for two very brief questions. So are there... Any further brief car? So one, two. <laughs> uh, and so if you keep them very brief, and then I'm afraid I'll be telling the speakers to answer very briefly. Um, hi, I'm Maddie. I'm a student at LSE. And um, I was wondering, um, like, working with the idea that anyone, regardless of their gender identity, could theoretically shoot a gun or drop a bomb, how does the, um, like, the idea of um, hegemonic masculinity work with the idea that it, it kind of weapons both enhance this idea of hegemonic masculinity but also undermine it, working with the idea that anyone could theoretically drop a bomb, and what opportunities or challenges this poses within the idea of disarmament um, and feminist peace? Thank you. Hi. And here, yes. <laughs> Hi, I'm Kay. Um, I'm also an LSE student on the WPS program. Um, Rebecca, you were talking about um, the use of affect during your activism at Greenham Common and also um, going off Ray's idea of changing the script. Um, I was wondering what you thought of, of, of the role of affect in the nuclear disarmament um, discourse as a whole and how we can utilize that in the more legitimate sort of narratives of disarmament. Thank you. So the role of affect. Given that you've both kept them really nice and brief, yeah. is there anybody who wants a, a final question? Yes. <laughs> I'm Jenny Cooper. I was at um, LSE for many years and um, so I just had a question about drones um, that that's such a huge part now of the kind of military infrastructure and you know how does that play out in the kind of gender discourse that the stereotype is that the people who employ them and who create them are men you know often young men who played computer games um, you know what 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 can be done in that respect? Just a small final question. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, well, I'll turn to... I'm afraid you're going to have to have sort of 30 seconds in which you can either reply, answer, point on some questions, or a final thoughts of your own. So we'll take it in a different order. Ray, mm. um, you were last last time. Sure. So, um, so I'm going to try and combine a couple of these, but um, on the question about... Um, how we can also look at this idea of hegemonic masculinity and kind of turn the, the tables on that a little bit. So one way, there's a few ways to do this, but one way um, to do it um, actually takes me into the drones question and gender as well. So um, if we look at uh, acts of military violence um, and militarism as gender-based violence and certain circumstances against men, um, and thinking about in drone targeting and casualty recording in particular, for example, um, men of a certain age, of a military age, are considered militants. 
And that's it. That's, that is the U.S. targeting practice, is it's men of, of military age. Um, and so in this, uh, it is actually gender-based violence against men. Um, and so I think that there's a lot of different ways that we can actually see the hegemonic masculinity negatively affecting men. So there's this idea that... Um, you know, uh, men or those men that want to sort of buy into this uh, conception of masculinity and, and want to be part of that and feel that that is what it means to be a real man, we can also look at how that harms them in many, many ways um, and how that harms all of us in terms of dehumanization of others, et cetera, et cetera, but that it also has specific impacts for, for men, making men more expendable, making men automatically targetable um, bodies in conflict. Um, and this conception that, you know, women and children, all, sort of all one word over here, women and children somehow grouped together are innocent civilians and men are the fighters and they deserve to die and we deserve to be protected. And this hurts all of us across the board. Um, on, and then on drones, I have a, a, a lot of explanation on that, so I'll just say that there's um, actually a chapter that I authored for a study that's on the humanitarian impact of drones, and I did a chapter on gender and drones, um, so we can somehow get that out to all of you if you're interested, but it does run through all the different ways that uh, drones as a technology and the way drones are used is gendered. Thank you. Uh, well, just not to repeat anything, I'll just throw out two final thoughts. Uh, one is, I think, women in weapons. We need to also be just mindful that we're, our concept of weapons is changing all the time uh, as a result of new technologies. Um, if you look at cyber of, uh, offensive attacks on digital destabilization of relationships within societies and relations within communities, um, uh, what does weapons mean today? So let's not completely, you know, forget that in our thinking. And the second one is just an observation. Um, the debate on what's the role of a feminist perspective around weapons and whether we should be thinking about changing the entire patriarchy and the disarmament and the frameworks or whether we operate within the system. I just hope that we don't get too ratcheted in that debate because that's the same debate we had in feminism in the 1970s was, was it to overturn class and race in the entire system or was it to fight for women's right to access to the workspace, to their provisions, to the workspace? So I'm not saying that we shouldn't have it, but we've never resolved that question in feminism yeah. to this day and I just would hope that it wouldn't be the only lens that we would look at as you go forward. Absolutely. Brain-busting questions. <laughs> yeah, so to the students, if you wanted to, I don't know, write a master's dissertation on any of those questions, <laughs> that sounds like it would be a good idea. Um, I think I'd just say sort of two things in kind of general response to everything, and which is the most important things that I have learnt from, from feminism. One is the spectrum of war, not war, that it's not so easy to differentiate between where a place that is at war and a place that is not war, given the ways in which intimate partner violence through to communal violence, through to interstate war, are always, these are overlapping um, categories. And the second thing is the way in which um, some of the best feminist writing recognises both power and asymmetry and conflict and violence and also plurality, affect, difference, and has sort of creative ways of thinking about how to put those things into conversation and into tension with each other. Great. And very brief final <coughs> word, Rebecca. So I'm, 
I'm actually just going to make a, a response that I think touches on all three but doesn't actually answer fully good yeah, any of them. <laughs> uh, but again, I think it also um, has to do with the issues of power, the issues of responsibility and uh, issues of, of affect. Uh, and in many ways, drones, nuclear weapons, and the new generation of the what we call the killer robots, um, the fully autonomous weapon systems, they bear some real similarities, which is about distance killing, killing from a distance. Um, and whether there's some young man kind of, 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 of playing with a console, but actually there's a real person dying or, or a real community being blown up at the bottom of it, or somebody, you know, deep in a bunker firing a nuclear weapon and an entire city goes up somewhere else, you know, and all of these things, they're actually connected. And what the killer robots wants to do is even take, once you've programmed, taking the human out of it. Now, what we do as feminist activists is put the human back in there. And we, we do that in, in a number of ways. We, 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 we do that through the work we do on treaties and getting certain kinds of things into those treaties. But it, you know, for me, it goes right back to how we were doing nonviolent direct action. And I'll just give one example and that, that I'll end. We would, <clears throat> you know, once they deployed the nuclear weapons at Greenham and started to take them out on their nuclear exercises, which were war exercises, we would do everything we could both to alert the community around, but also ourselves to create a situation in which as safely as we could, but also quite in quite risky and, and, and challenging, but also quite exciting ways, we would put ourselves in front of the weapons and try to stop them. Now, as we did it, there was a whole not narrative there, which was, just to summarize, kind of about, okay, you're driving this down our A34 or our roads to melt into the countryside to target, you know, cities full of other human beings just like us. We're going to look you in the eye. We're going to slow you down, look you in the eye, and we're going to say, are you willing to run us over? And nearly all the time, they were not. And we were, <laughs> and we were generally... Um, essentially, you know, engaging in a conversation that then also went on between the fence, saying, if you're not prepared to look us in the eye and kill, you, you cannot keep giving your power or doing the bidding of a military who, who, who gives you a small part of that power and responsibility to kill a lot of people and, and then leaves you to do it. So there would be that kind of an, a, a, a narrative right there on the ground in the action that also translate through the treaties. Which is a great way. <laughs> thank you. Um, right, I've got four very quick announcements before um, we thank the speakers. First, there is a reception immediately um, outside. Turn left as you go out into the atrium. And I've just been told by Ray that she has brought the Nobel Peace Prize and will show it um, at the reception, which I think is great. Third... Remember my question. Uh, what do you think of when you hear the words feminist peace? Outside at the reception, so there's a price for your drink, you see, um, there are lots of post-its, and what we would like you to do is to just write a sentence or so on the post-its and stick them up on the, um, the wall or the um, chart that we've got there. Zoe will firmly take <laughs> and um, organise um, organize this, and then we'll have a really good time reading them. And finally, I'd like to thank all of you for your questions, for your participation, and most especially the speakers, who I think have given a really, really good time.